Hello, and welcome to Break the Line, the podcast where we talk with guests about topics in contemporary poetry. The catch? The guests aren't poets. I'm your host and resident poet, Rebecca Faravar. For this episode, we went a little against type, and I spoke with novelist Mary Vollmer and Michael David Lucas about short poems. Mary is the author of Crown of Dust, an historical novel set in California gold country that was published in the U.S. by Soho Press in 2010. Michael is the author of The Oracle of Stamboul, also an historical novel, but about a little girl who becomes an advisor to the Ottoman Sultan, which was published by Harper in 2011. We focused on two poems for our discussion, Laconic Parkway by Rebecca Wolf from her book The King, which was published by Norton in 2009, and Again This Morning by Carol Snow, found in her book Four, which was published by University of California Press in 2000. Okay, let's get to the show. When you were thinking of your novel, it kind of came to you as a whole vision. It seems like, Michael, too, you had kind of an image that came to you and you built off of that. And this idea of um, completeness versus being done, maybe. It sounds like when you're saying you kind of have to cut yourself off at a certain point, but how do you know when it's complete and what does that mean for you in terms of a novel? When I started writing the the book that I'm writing now, it's about the Jews of Cairo, and there's uh, about a thousand years of you know Jews living in Cairo, and so I developed like nine different plot lines, all these different stories um, that were you know important in different ways to the sort of history of the Jews of Cairo, and then I started writing it and realized that you know I couldn't write that novel that you know that was going to be a 2000 page novel and so I, I I the process of writing it, it, it yeah I had this sort of large vision and then the process of writing it was about paring it down to sort of the three main plot lines that were at the heart of the story um and so I guess what I'm trying to say is that you may have this whole vision but the novel may not encompass all of that it may sort of just hint at all and you know th- those other stories may be in 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 between the lines they may be sort of the silences yeah the silence i think is huge especially with the poems we're going to talk about now and all that is said in tone uh, in those few short lines um well why don't yeah why don't we start taking a, a look at these poems it may seem sort of counterintuitive right novelists talking about short poems <laughs> novelists have, work with a lot of words <laughs> Short poems, uh, in the cases we're talking about, sometimes have only a few words, only a few lines. But I'm really interested in touching on this idea of how something that is so small can have this sense of completeness or have this whole world about it built on the silence. And how is that maybe similar or in contrast to how a novel can do that? And yeah, so I'm just curious to see how that works out. So why don't we go ahead? We'll start by talking about this poem by Rebecca Wolf called Laconic Parkway. And so Mary, why don't you go ahead and read that for us? Laconic Parkway. I had a baby. It was inevitable. I was pregnant. And we should say, too, that Mary has had a baby. <laughs> and so I think you said you had a particular appreciation for this poem. Do you want to tell us about that? God, that made me, made me laugh when I saw this poem. For one thing, there's a certain inevitability about the birthing process. Things go right with or without your will and effort. <laughs> so there was a lot of things about this poem. The tone, this kind of sardonic 
finality to this, to the end of the, the poem, uh, the fact that there's so few words said, because if you look at the bookstore, let me tell you, the whole section on breastfeeding and the first month of pregnancy and the first month of childhood. Oh my gosh. They, the publishing industry probably lives on pregnancy and child rearing books. And here's this poem that said, I have a baby. It was inevitable. I was pregnant. <laughs> so there was a certain amount of humor in, in, in that, that I, that I loved in Laconic Parkway. And you imagine this green stretch between this passing cars on either side. It's the image of that juxtaposed with this very dry statement um, after, after having a baby just kind of made me laugh. That's great because um, I think uh, what you're getting at and what's striking about this poem is the humor in it, like you said, but also that it does seem to touch on this very real experience, you know, and that there's this vastness and uh, so much to say about pregnancy, but then also at the end, it's like, well, this was this was what it was. I remember what I was going to say. So there's some sort of biolo biological determinism I had never really bought into before. The difference between a male and a female body was just so clear for the first time. As an athlete growing up playing with the boys, you spent your whole life trying desperately to prove yourself on some level the same. And now there's this process that you have no control over that proves unequivocally that you are not the same, that miracle or not, you are not in control. And, and that was absolutely shocking to me. Right. And Mary, I think to your kind of drawing on this point, um, the first two lines, right? I had a baby. It was inevitable. If we stop there, that also has this whole history of being a woman and the sort of experience. And I think also hints at kind of what you're getting at, this idea of maybe I didn't think, or the speaker maybe didn't think she would have a baby and then realizing, oh, it was inevitable. And then the twist, of course, is somewhat of a punchline, right? But it does speak to this kind of female experience as well of, you know, that parkway going down life and feeling like maybe uh, there were things that were out of my control to a certain extent as well, um, which is all just in that little line break, right, before you get to I was pregnant. And then that undercuts <laughs> any kind of sentimentality or feminist uh, impulse or, or whatnot or, or female, um, you know, meditation. So and then, of course, laconic, which is to be concise, almost to the point of being rude, has this <laughs> sort of irony. We have this whole expanse of the parkway, <laughs> but then also talking about being concise. This was the road I was on almost all along. Um, because I've never had a baby or been pregnant. Um, I I sort of read the the poem in a way as being about like time and like looking back on, I mean, it's along the lines of what you were saying, sort of like looking back on this hugely momentous thing in, in the rear view mirror. Um, and I kind of just pictured, you know, the way that we live our lives is, is similar to how what it's like to like drive on one of those sort of East coast parkways, you know, you're just kind of cruising along and then you look back and you've covered all this, all this territory. And, and that was sort of how I read the, the sort of mode of how she was looking back. You know, it, it starts with her having a baby and then it's like, Oh, I was on this road. It was inevitable. I was pregnant. Um, and you sort of get to these things and you pass these milestones without, really being aware of them or, or sort of stopping to, to recognize them. So does it strike you as novelist 
when you read something like this where it's really hinting at this kind of experience that that is very specific but universal though also in a way like uh, how should I phrase this without sounding like, are you jealous that <laughs> she, she's able to get that? I mean, what, why do you think that is that with so few words, she's really able to hit, hit at this um, experience that does have a sort of universal quality to it? Well, you do, you, there are two different goals, I think. It's a suggestive. This poet, poetry, especially now, is very suggestive. All of these things are suggested in a few lines. Whereas a novel is an expressive art more so than than the poem it hasn't always been that way so the goals are fundamentally different when i hear this poem and i and i think of it i i see character Mm -hmm. what kind of woman would describe her experience in this way is there sorrow beneath this uh terse statement is there some sort of (laughs) what what kind of personality would would accompany something like this and then of course suddenly the statement mushrooms into something much more perhaps dramatic and expressive than the than the line indicates here but it's difficult because you're trying to move people in a direction with through time novels are fundamentally about how to move people through time because change happens whether it's a day whether it's a minute whether it's a thousand years um, people are expressed in time so that's that's actually a really great point because and, and kind of transitions us to the next poem by carol snow because we are looking at these types of fragments that are um you know, certainly come from a, a voice and a speaker but are absent from a story essentially right and absent from a plot so with that in mind why don't we go ahead and talk about the next poem by carol snow again this morning which is from her book four michael could you read that for us again this morning the steering wheel seemed fragile since not the breadth of my husband's body. Great, thank you. So this one is a bit different, right? Because we have a very specific moment, a specific situation. We can see a little bit more of the characters. And certainly Carol Snow is actually working with the fragment. So she's interested in this idea of little glimpses, little breaks uh, in time. So um, I don't know, Michael, how did you respond differently to this poem as opposed to the poem by Rebecca Wolfe? It was interesting because I I felt like this one, you know, you could very much picture sort of this woman sitting again at her car, holding her steering wheel and sort of thinking of her husband's body. And, you know, that it's very corporeal and physical and, you know, it sort of brings to mind this relationship between the steering wheel and sort of the bones of the husband's body. And, and it, it just felt like a, such a different poem and yet you know so much of the sort of content is the same it's it's about cars and driving and you know life and relationships and bodies and I mean I guess that's those are all sort of broad things but um they seem to sort of rhyme in a way and yet they're coming at these topics from in entirely different ways and I thought that was cool (laughs) Great. Yeah, Mary, how about you? How was uh, your response to this poem different, perhaps, from the Rebecca Wolf poem? Uh, well, in the notes of sorrow that I was maybe reading into the poem, um, 
we're almost, almost had a taste to me. You can see her behind the wheel again, a very visual image where the other one almost re, uh, refuses to be an image. This one is absolutely rigid and um, framed almost within this car. And, and she's not moving. There is a suggestion that she'd like to. Um, there's a suggestion of grief in that, in that stasis. Uh, and a suggestion of a repetitive act when she says, uh, uh, again this morning, the title, again this morning. So there's a woman who's habitually battling this paralyzing grief, and yet where is she going? Is she going to work? Is she going to the store to pick up some milk? You know, life is going on, and yet the life she's lost is not. Yes, I, I would definitely you know agree, and I think that's what's so striking to me about these two poems uh, is that this one you have such a clear picture, also very few words, right? Very, <laughs> very short, but um, because it is so corporeal and you have this clear image, and there's so much that you can pick apart with each word, um, that it seems so much more specific almost than uh, the Rebecca Wolf poem, which in some ways is you know, striving to be a bit more universal and kind of has this little punchline sarcastic element to it. This one has this deep sincerity to it. And also we might notice that the title leads into the first line of the poem so we can read it as a complete sentence. In terms of completeness, it has, it it grammatically is complete as well, right? It's a complete sentence, it's a complete image, which is a bit different. Do you feel like with this poem, perhaps the same types of uh, universality, though, still, uh, as we did with Wolf? Or does this just feel very um, specific to this and then to the speaker, excuse me? And then also thinking about as you're writing novels, I imagine you, you have to focus very much on these little details as well as the heavy lifting of the plot. And so how does that work for you when you're writing in terms of what details do you choose to focus on? Well, one of the few sort of articulatable epiphanies I've ever had about novel writing is that, you know, that a novel is just an accumulation of sort of details about characters and, and sort of interactions that they have. Um, and it, and so for a while I was just, you know, when I was writing, I was kind of trying to get the, the most perfect way to describe things. And that sort of set me off on this whole difficult and I think kind of wrong track, at least for my writing process. Um, and instead recently I've started trying to write in a way that's sort of building towards something and, and recognizing that each of these sentences is not sort of, doesn't have a kind of platonic ideal that I'm trying to, you know, replicate, but it's actually sort of building towards something else. And, yeah, and so when I'm picking those details, I'm very conscious of sort of how it's relating to the rest of the work. And yet at the same time, they all sort of exist on their own and they can be kind of beautiful little moments or images or what have you by themselves. Yeah, I, I guess going back to the idea of a frame, I spent a time at a residency and I was amazed at how long the painters took to actually start working and I realized they're stretching the canvas they're doing all of this to prepare themselves to work and I had no idea how important that process was because you you established very quickly the limits within which you're going to work 
And when you do that, then suddenly this myriad of details that are possible narrows some. And that's, thank goodness, right? Because every decision you make in a story, there's 15 others that you could have made, which made, which make then every decision after um, dependent. So establishing some sort of frame, some sort of limiting agent really helps, really helps getting the details right. And until you know the shape of what you're doing, and sometimes it'll happen right away, and sometimes it'll take time, and sometimes you won't know, and then you just don't, you don't finish that story. Uh, it's really hard to get the details right. Because there's such beautiful language out there, but beautiful language is not beautiful writing. It's pretty words, but not the right words sometimes. Yeah, and it seems like in the context of this fragment that we're talking about, too, I, I like that idea because for you, the story is the frame and then the details are filling in. But it's almost like in this case, the details are the frame, <laughs> right? Like everything about this is just hinging on these specific words. Like if it was, if it wasn't in a car, if it wasn't a steering wheel, if it, again, like I, f I feel like so much of this poem hinges on that word again that tells us mm. so much more than, than anything else and seemed right seemed fragile as opposed to actually being fragile you know things like that so so it's a, a different I guess because it's a smaller scale again coming down we're not moving in time we're not moving in a story but she can just focus on this specific moment to then and from that we imagine the story out whereas perhaps as novelists you start with this story and then from there the the details are leading are coming out as you need to tell that story. The, the scope of the emotion in this small poem is huge. The scope of the effect is much larger than maybe even some whole novels, in part because moments like this, if they happen in a book, are quickly overrun by the next and the next. This kind of momentous progression that narrative demands is not uh, in place here. There's a photog photographic quality that allows you to sit with the image and sit with the emotion that we don't do. We're very quick to shove under the rug any kind of unpleasant emotion, and this forces us to sit there with her in the car. The, that, that's a wonderful image. You're kind of stuck, at least until you get the seatbelt off and the door open and the radio, you know, and then that, that image, we're stuck there with her. I, I, liked, I also like the idea that this how this poem is kind of about the metaphors that we make in our daily life mm -hmm. um that she's again and again sort of comparing this steering wheel to her husband's body and it's you know it is a metaphor in the poem but it's also sort of about the process of making meaning through metaphor um and how we sort of just do it all the time mm -hmm. um and I, I i like that and i also liked the um the spatialness of the poem um how how the second line is so much broader than than the first and that's something that i i sort of envy in <laughs> poems because you know you can't really do that so much in a novel you're kind of for the most part kind of constrained to this certain style of formatting <laughs> Yeah, and actually that's a, a great point to bring up. Um, just can say for the listeners, the first, this poem is uh, two lines. The first line is just the steering wheel. And then the rest of the poem seemed fragile since not the breath of my husband's body. So visually, like you pointed out, it's much longer. 
than the first part. Um, and actually, I did want to talk about this aspect of form. I mean, is form something you ever think about? And how does that impact the strength of your novel or, or your story? Or, or is, that, is that something you even handle or, or think about when you're writing? Oh, yeah. I mean, you go back to that, that framing, stretching the canvas, and what, what are you actually dealing with? What are the boundaries? And sometimes you don't know that right away. You have to write yourself into the boundaries of, of, of your story. But without that, it's a sprawl. There is no resonance at the end. There is no silence that speaks because you have no idea what you're trying to say. There's too much to say. A novel is actually a very short very, very short. Um, how many words actually go into writing the words that show up in a, in a given novel? Many, many, many more than actually show up. So without that form, that's what I've learned in the process of writing this book. I think I knew it instinctively on the first book. The frame was there for me, the boundaries I'd set without really considering what I was doing. And this time, coming to the form of the book in a much more deliberate fashion, um, has taught me a lot about form. In, in a novel, you have a whole lot of varieties, but you have traditional structures like the three-act or the five-act play that you can, you can use as your foundation for all the other variations that you want to throw in there. As I've been writing the second novel and sort of thinking about a third, I've been also thinking a lot about sort of form, and I tend to put constraints on myself, kind of a Olipoan, uh, you know, very lightweight Olipoan way of <laughs> going about writing novels. And so I'll, I'll sort of create a structure in my mind and then I'll stick to it. And it's very hard to move away from that. Um, and I actually just recently sort of gave myself the permission to make the book I'm writing now in you know, seven parts instead of nine parts. Mm -hmm. And that was, mm -hmm. for some reason, like this huge stumbling block for me that I, I, I couldn't get over. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think, that, I think that form is very important and it's a sort of, it's the frame within which we write. And if we don't have that frame, we can just go off the rails. But at the same time, it's important to sort of like hear the form in what you've written as opposed to imposing the form on the sort of, a novel from above. Um, maybe to wrap up, since both of you are working on new novel projects, maybe you could talk a little bit about those projects and what, um, I guess you've touched on that a little bit about what the experience is like writing them, but just talk a little bit about how it came about and what you're working on. I'm working on a book called The 43rd Name of God. It's about the Jews of Cairo and sort of three intertwined plot lines. One about a relatively contemporary grad student who's of Egyptian heritage and his father dies and goes back to Cairo. Another one about these two Victorian lady Bible hunters <laughs> who go to Cairo in search of this sort of cache of documents. And the the oldest one in the 11th century about teenage Muslim guard of synagogue. And so all these stories kind of intersect and it's it as I said, it was it started out as like nine different stories, and mm -hmm. a lot of the novel writing process has been sort of paring it down to those three essential stories and and trying to fit them together. And and you know, I wrote them all separately, and then now I'm in the process of trying to sort of fit them back together and and make those resonances work in a way that I I, I want it to. Um, and writing it separately, like how did 
you know, is that something you had, like, how did that idea come about or did it just sort of happen? Um, they're both, they're all three really distinct voices. And so it, I think it just would have made me crazy to sort of switch mm. between those voices. And, and so it's, it's much easier for me to sort of sit with the individual voices for, you know, six months at a time than to s- switch between them. So it was really just a sort of ease of writing. And Mary, yeah, can you tell us about your current project? Yeah, it sounds like we're about the same place in the, the revision process. Um, a second novel takes place on the Mississippi River about 10 years after the Civil War in this crazy time when we're supposed to, the war's over and yet the ravages of war, including the young men who are su- stuff, suffering and trying to recover, are still very much a dark shadow over this place. And the children that were born just during or after the war are living within this silent shadow. So my novel is about a little girl with a Weinstein birthmark most of the way down her body who comes to the town, fictional town of Reliance, on the Mississippi River with her mother, who is a mail-order bride of the town printer. But, of course, they didn't tell the town printer that there was a daughter coming, so they call her the sister. And uh, Madeline, the young woman who is the focal point of the story, um, is eventually goes to live with the prodigal daughter returned to this place, uh, Lady of the Sage and Suffragette. And um, I won't tell you more because that would ruin it, but... <laughs> Great. I should have you guys back to talk about uh, history because yeah, <laughs> yeah. you both are working on historical projects. I know. I wish I could say I did that on purpose, but it was just a coincidence. Well, thank you guys so much for talking about these poems, and thank you to everyone for listening. People often talk about like Hemingway or like Lydia Davis or something. They're like every word is perfectly chosen, and I I, I sort of take issue with that because when you're writing something that long. I feel like it can't be perfect in a way. It can't be this sort of like gem that a poem is. And and a lot of writing is sort of coming to terms with that. I feel like I'm sort of sounding depressing, but that's <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe it's because I'm at that point in the process 